In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus traveled around Galilee, teaching and healing. Crowds gathered and followed him. Jesus went up on a mountain and taught the most famous sermon ever given, the Sermon on the Mount. In this sermon, he starts with eight statements that all begin with the word, blessed. Join us as we journey through these eight descriptions that show where true joy and abundant life can be found. All right, well, hey, we are finishing up a series today. Today is part eight, and uh, that's a lot longer than we normally go, but we based it off of something that Jesus said and did, and so uh, it it took eight parts to get through it because there were eight statements that he made. And we call these the Beatitudes. If you've been with us throughout the series, then I hope you've been able to follow maybe if you were on vacation one week. And if you're here for the first time, or if you did miss any, all of these are on our website or on our app. And the reason that's so important is as we have explained all the way through this, this is not a pick and choose, be good at one, be bad at the other, and it'll be okay. Like that's how we got through high school, is we were good in math and bad in English, or some of us, we were bad in math and English, but we did really good in home economics or whatever it was, <laughs> and we hoped it would all average out. And the, the thing about the Beatitudes, it's about kingdom virtues, a way to live your life according to the virtues of the kingdom of God. And all eight of them work together. So if you did miss one, I want to encourage you to go and get that. And we're calling the series Blessed because Jesus started each of these sentences with blessed are those, and then he would go into a description And the idea of being blessed means that we are favored and approved by God. Anybody want God's favor and approval on your life? Exactly. And so again, all eight of them, we need to put all eight together in our lives. But what was significant that we've learned is that the kingdom virtues Jesus was teaching couldn't have been more opposite from the worldly virtues we've already grown to know, right? And so the whole series has hopefully kind of challenged you. Like, wow, I was raised to think this, and I was raised to live this way, but Jesus says that. Man, I'm going to have to make a change. So as we start today, I just want to ask you a question. Which one of these Beatitudes so far has been the most challenging? Which one has stuck out to you that for you is the one you're going to have to ask God to help you with the most? And and obviously, I'm not going to pass a microphone around the room. That would take too long and be a little bit chaotic. But it's important for you to know. It's important for you to walk away with this saying, well, I'm going to start with this one because this is number one on my list of needing to bring this into my life. And so what we're going to do today is we come to number eight, they all come together and they come and land on a very big conclusion. And so I'm going to take a moment just to show you how they all tie together, if you'll allow me. I'm going to share with you each of the Beatitudes so far with the one key thought that, that we can cling to. And again, uh, you have to go back and get the rest. I'm only going to give you one, one key thought here. But Jesus started out his whole Sermon on the Mount with these eight statements. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit was the first beatitude. And what he was saying is, blessed are those who recognize there is nothing in me that is good before God. I need God. I need God to change me. I need God to save me. I need God for everything good in my life. I'm poor in spirit. And then he goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn. And by the way, as he's saying, blessed are those who mourn in this context, he's not talking about grieving the loss of a loved one. That's true, and that's all throughout Scripture and other places. But what he's talking about here is blessed are those who mourn over the sinfulness of the world. They look around and say, God, help us. They look at the sinfulness even of of the church sometimes and say, God, help us. But most of all, they look in the mirror and say, God, help me. 
And their heart is broken, truly broken over their own sin. And that was the whole point. Do you ever get to a place where you just grieve over things about you that have hurt God, maybe even to the point of tears? And Jesus went on to say, blessed are the meek. And the meek means someone who is broken and submitted. Humble is probably the best word that we can put on that. And so it means that, that we, we stand before God and say, you're God, I'm not. So I will change and that, of course, is very, very different from our world, isn't it? Our world says, well, I don't, I don't like what they say God says, so God's just going to have to be okay with me. And I've heard people make those kind of statements. But the, the meek are the ones who say, you're God, I'm not. Your ways are right. Mine have to be wrong. I'm the one that's going to make the change. But it also plays out in how we deal with people around us because it means that that we're gonna be humble towards other people. We're gonna do whatever we can to, to help them and to put them first, even if it's at our own expense. And then the fourth one, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And uh, we talked about how those are really not good words for us anymore. Those words made sense 2,000 years ago. People truly did get hungry, hungry, and they got thirsty, and they were exhausted. For you and me, we don't know what that's like. And so for our purpose, we kind of changed that word to saying blessed are those who are obsessed like, we, we can't live without, because that's the, the desperation he was conveying to them on a hot afternoon in the Middle East where they had been walking for miles or even days to get there. They, they understood the desperation of hunger and thirst. So for us, we're changing it to being obsessed for God's ways. That's being right with God. And so what we want to do then is take anything that is not like God and, and change that. And anything that God is not like, and we want to change that. You guys understand that? And so then, so what we do with those first four will impact the next three because the next three are primarily how we relate to people around us. And so he goes on to say, blessed are the merciful. You see, mercy is about giving compassion to someone in need, not someone who deserves it. And so what he's saying is it's merciful to forgive someone who needs forgiveness, not because they were good enough. It's merciful to be generous to someone, even if their foolishness got them into that situation. Blessed are those who are merciful because they'll receive mercy. And I think we can all say, hey, I'm a sinner someday. I'm gonna need that mercy too, right? That's what we learned in that one. And then Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And pure in heart is about being real, transparent, genuine, and sincere in front of the whole world as well as before God, but it means who you are is who people think you are, and who people think you are is who you are. You don't do one of those things where you say, sure, I'd love to help you with that, and they go, oh, I can't believe I gotta help these people, you know? But we're sincere. Then he says, blessed are the peacemakers. We misunderstand this one a little bit because we think, oh, blessed are those who seem to be at peace and get along with everyone. No, it's not blessed are those who keep a false peace, not blessed are those who appease. Blessed are those who make peace. And what that means sometimes is that you have to go into a challenging situation and, and have a hard conversation with other people. But there's also one thing that we overlook, and we're called to be peacemakers, and the place where there is the least peace is between God and people who do not know him. So he gave us the mission to be peacemakers, to go and share the gospel with people so that they would know the love of God. Those are the first seven. And then he finished with a statement that uh, I just have to say, at least he told us. Because this last one is, well, it's really a heads up. It's kind of a warning, to be honest, that if you live your life according to the first seven, something 
is going to come out of that. There is going to be a most likely reality that it will result in. And so he comes to the very last beatitude and says, blessed are the persecuted. And right now some of you go, man, we picked the wrong day to come to church, honey. What were you thinking? But he says, blessed are the persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I just want to quick, quickly pause and talk about the reward because he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the same as the first beatitude, if you remember. And so we learned, if you're poor in spirit, you recognize your need for God. You call upon God to save you and you become a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so it's very confusing, maybe, at face value to think, oh, so if I'm persecuted, if people pick on me, I can go to heaven just for that. And that would be to misunderstand this. What Jesus was implying and meaning here is the only people that will be persecuted to the point of suffering for the sake of righteousness are people who have recognized their need for God. They are pure in heart. They do hunger and thirst for righteousness. And they are people who will be in heaven. And so all of the other Beatitudes, by the way, stop. After one line, just, just one very simple line. Blessed are these people, here's their reward. But this one, he keeps going. So he already said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But he continues, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, very important word, on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Excuse me? Jesus, no, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be too excited about that one. Rejoice in that. No, no, no. But rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So let's talk about this reward in heaven idea. What it means, first of all, is don't look for that reward on earth. As long as you spend the rest of your life on earth before heaven, living according to these kingdom virtues and standing for God and his word, you're probably going to continue to get persecution, not a reward. The reward is in heaven. It's a great reward in heaven. And so what is that? Well, first of all, it's just heaven. Come on. Can nobody say amen to that one? Like there's an alternative. That's a whole other series we've done. But it means that we are going to have eternity in heaven. It means that we get glorified bodies, no more sickness. We get glorified minds, no more thoughts we have to worry about or deal with. It means that you never again have to make an appointment with a pastor to ask a question. You get to go straight to God and say, God, what's up with Leviticus? And then you get to see God laugh at you like you just did. Because we will all get it finally. It'll all make sense. I mean, that's the, the greatness of heaven. Fellowship with him, walking with him. And there's gold and there's glass streets. And there's just everything that's going to be amazing. And remember how he said, great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets. It means that we get to hang out with the greatest heroes of our faith. I mean, we're going we're gonna to be there having tea, heavenly tea with people like Daniel and Elijah. And it's tea because there will be no coffee in heaven. There will be no need for burned water. So <laughs> I'm a tea drinker. And we'll all be having tea as we, we meet with these people like Abraham and, and Isaac and Daniel and David and all these great people and like Peter, Paul, and Mary. And <laughs> somebody's got that one. I always kind of regretted that I didn't get to have personal time with Billy Graham. One of the, the things that he did in the last couple of decades of his life is he would allow pastors to come and meet with him. He would pray for them, and he would impart a blessing over them. And Well, unfortunately, I was a little too young in my ministry, and now he's in heaven. And, and I've always kind of thought, man, I missed out on that until I realized, man, I'm going to get to see Billy. I'm going to get to, like, have tea and chocolate cookies and talk to Billy and say, man, you did the most amazing stuff. I admire you so much. I mean, we're going to get those moments. Great is your reward in heaven. 
So, now let's get back to the point. Because the point is, you will be persecuted. And you'll be reviled because of God and his word. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Let's make sure we understand what he's actually saying here. I know we may throw these words around. Actually, one of them we probably don't use very often. We probably get the idea of persecute. It means to, to receive hostile treatment because of what we believe or because of our identity, which might be your race or your gender, something like that, where you receive a hostile treatment. So that one kind of makes sense. We're going to be treated hostile by other people simply because of what we believe. But then there's the other word. He says, they will also revile you. And some of your versions, if you're following along, might use the word insult. And by the way, that's a good word. But I, I think the word revile is much deeper because just one of the meanings of revile is to insult. But there are actually, there's a, a pretty good list of the ugliness that comes out of that if people are going to revile us. It means they're going to attack us. They're going to condemn us simply because we believe what God says. They're going to smear us. They're going to vilify us. They're going to brand us falsely. I mean, that's what that word means. And we live in a world where sometimes we're surprised when this happens, but Jesus said, hey, it's coming. Matter of fact, he says, if you live according to the virtues of the kingdom that I just spent all this time saying, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. If you choose to be one of those, then this is your, your lot. It's going to come. All throughout the series, I've tried to share with you at least one quote from the research I've been doing because there are really smart people that say things so well. Here's another one. It says, since all the Beatitudes describe what every Christian disciple is intended to be, we conclude that the condition of being despised and rejected, slandered and persecuted is as much a normal mark of Christian discipleship is all the rest, like being pure in heart or being merciful. I don't know about you, but we wake up every day. Are you working on being pure in heart? Sure. You're working on being merciful? Sure. Are you glad you're persecuted? Oh, excuse me? We, we really don't like the idea that Jesus is telling us, and, and all the scripture agrees, that this is our lot. This is our likelihood. And, and one of the first things we're going to want to do, of course, is to try and avoid it. So let's break it down practically in the time we have left. We have a problem, and hopefully, in this case, problems have solutions. But the problem is you will be, not maybe, you will be persecuted, you will be maligned, and you will be falsely branded. And the fact behind this that we need to understand is that we live in what is deemed a post-Christian society. Are you guys aware of that? What that means is that sociologists study the world and they, they look at uh, different societies throughout history. We have reached the point that we are officially America today, 2021. We are a post-Christian society. Meaning, the days when you could walk down the street and meet a stranger and say, hey, what church do you go to? And you would most likely get an answer and they would not be offended by the question. Those days are behind us. Meaning the days when the predominant values of the world around us were based upon the Bible and what God says, and even laws of our country were based upon those, those days are behind us. It's officially a post-Christian society. And so what we have to realize is if we were to, to pull back the curtain and find out what is behind all of this, what is behind the persecution, what is behind the change in that society, 
It's a very simple thing. It is the clash of two value systems, a very dramatic clash. You see, we have a set of values that are based upon our God and his word. And the, the society around us that is post-Christian, they have values that are actually anti-Christian because it is post-Christian. And so that is where our struggle comes in. See, the people who hunger and thirst for righteousness do that. And the people who don't, do not. And it creates a completely different set of beliefs and values. And our current culture, a lot of us would say, Jimmy, I don't really know that we face that much persecution. And, and it would be true in some aspect. We would say, well, I don't, I don't think we encounter personal one-on-one like a, a, a person trying to attack me and, and hurt me. And the truth is that's, that's probably our case. We don't have a lot of that. Matter of fact, I can't tell you the number of times that someone will come to me and say, I have an atheist friend who's asking this question, what can I say to them? And the, the statement, I have an atheist friend, proves my point. You see, we can have atheist friends. We can ha- have non-believing friends. We can have people who think that way. And, and then most of us as well in America, we live in a place where we don't fear walking down the street with a Bible in our hands that a dictator and his army will arrest us or kill us. We don't. I've been in those situations. I, I went and did some ministry in a country one time where I was told you have to make sure you, when they ask you what you do for a living and why you're here, you say, I'm a teacher and I'm here to teach. And the good news is after I said that, no one asked me what I was going to teach, so we got away with that one. But the, the gentleman that was with me who was a native of the nearby country, he was the one that was carrying all of the materials that we would teach because that wasn't a, a, a world ruled by everybody having a smartphone, and so we had to actually take printed materials. So we were praying diligently and earnestly that they would not open his bag because you and I, we can go on vacation with a suitcase filled with Bibles, but he couldn't cross that border with materials that talked about God. And so a lot of us would say, that's exactly the point, Jimmy. That was somewhere else. It was somewhere you're not even willing to name online, which is true. And so we think that we don't face anything here today, but we do. What we face the persecution we're against is the ideology of an anti-Christian culture that surrounds us. And I hope some of you understand that. If not, I'm going to attempt to explain that a little bit, but the the reality is when we leave this room, if you stand and lift your hands and start singing to God, there are people who are going to think you're very, very weird. And they might even have other things to say about it. And, And so, for instance, the cultural value around us, which does not line up with what God teaches, is the idea of personal rights. I live for whatever pleases me, and I have the right to do so. But see, our value is completely different. Our value says I live to please God, and he defines it. Because I am bought with a price. I'm no longer my own. Whatever pleases him is what has to please me. I have to move toward him. Is everybody with me? We have a cultural value around us that says that gender and sexuality is based upon how you feel. But our value says that God formed us, our inmost parts, He made us male and female. He tells us that. That's not a choice. Cultural value around us says that abortion is a right, and it's normal. It's an acceptable option. But our value says that God created us in the womb, and he gave us purpose. And even while in the womb, he called us for the very things that we were going to do. I mean, I realize I'm getting into some really hot-button issues today, but think about the point. Why are they hot-button issues Because we live in a post-Christian society, and if we stand for God's word, we are attacked for that. Almost to the point that 
I have to, to explain, hey, I'm about to say something sensitive before I even talk about what God says. Doesn't that kind of explain the situation you and I face? The reality is that list would go on for a very long time. And if we stand with God in his word, we will we'll be persecuted and reviled by a culture that has a completely different set of values. Remember the word reviled means falsely branded, smeared, attacked, condemned. You guys remember that? Well, it's what happens to us today. You see, there used to be a time when we got to say, well, I believe this and you believe that. Now let's go have lunch. Some of us remember those days and, and we do have some relationships that are that way, but it's no longer popularly acceptable to say, well, I just believe what I believe. It's the word of God. You're no longer allowed to do that. Matter of fact, if you say, well, I believe the word of God, then we are smeared with the label narrow-minded. You guys know what I'm talking about? We're given other labels like if you say something that's in the Bible about another person, it's actually called hate speech. Well, I didn't say I hated them. I just said that God defines right and wrong. But again, the brand is false, right? Could I really just jump in the deep end of the pool for a minute? Probably the most common slur against somebody who says that God's word is God's word and he gets to make decisions is the slur homophobic. It's used against us all the time. It's meant to imply that if someone identifies as a homosexual that we actually don't like them or that we discriminate against them or we treat them differently. And can I just do a real quick time out and say, sadly, that has been true in some cases. And if as a Christian you do that and you treat someone more poorly, then you're just simply a hypocrite. Because yes, the Bible still calls that a sin, but it also calls your treatment of that person a sin and some other aspect of your life a sin because if anybody in here says, I am perfect, everybody scoot away. <laughs> and so for us to pick upon, pick on someone and to treat them that way. So here's the point. We get called homophobic, but all we're simply saying is that God defined our identity, God defines sexuality, God defines gender. It's, it's his decision. He made us, and that's not for us to choose. That's all we're saying. Matter of fact, I stand up for God's word all the time and say things that aren't popular in culture, like I stand here and preach on marriage, and I say, God's word says, and therefore we choose to do all of the hard work and to make absolutely every single effort to stay married and to fight against the choice to divorce, but I'm not divorceophobic. You guys follow my logic here? I stand up here and say God's word says that sex is for one man and one woman after marriage, but that does not make me sexophobic. I have four children to prove it. <laughs> I stand up here and say God says that we're supposed to honor him with the first 10% of everything we get. It's called the tithe. Jesus even said you should tithe. There's no question in scripture, and yet there are many of us that still struggle to do that, probably because of greed, but I'm not greedophobic, meaning I don't treat you differently. I don't dislike you. I don't discriminate against you. The point is, it's not a fair reflection of who we are. But Jesus didn't say, blessed are you when people speak of you correctly with fair titles. He said, blessed are you when you are reviled, falsely, because you stand up for me and my Father. See, Jesus said he was the word in the flesh. So that whole negotiation of well, maybe that's not his word. Maybe God has changed it. We need to see if we can alter it. No. All right, that's our problem, everyone. Now, what do we do about it? Well, here's the solution. First, 
We need to accept that reality. Because as long as you try to deny that reality, you're going to want to make a change and, and an adjustment to, to see if you can get someone to stop saying false things about you. And, well, that's never going to work. Because the reality is, Jesus said it, it's been true for 2,000 years, and it will be true until the day he comes back. We need to know and accept. If we stand with God in his word, we will be reviled, we'll be persecuted. Matter of fact, here's what Jesus said to his disciples at another time. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, then the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You know what Jesus just said? Don't be surprised if you're persecuted. Be surprised if you're not. Matter of fact, you probably need to ask questions. If, if people just love what you stand for and you never talk about what God's word says and you look so much like the world, even though Jesus said you're not of the world and no one persecutes you and no one insults you, you might want to ask a question. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, I, and sadly, I have to give a caveat at this point in the message. that Some of us are a little too excited about this point. Some of you have decided, well, if I'm not going to be liked, I shall be an expert at being unlikable. <laughs> we do have a reputation that sometimes is true. No, we, we need... We can't do that. He did not say, blessed are those who are persecuted for being a jerk's sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And can I remind you of something he said? Yes, you'll be persecuted. So pray for those who persecute you. Love those who declare themselves to be your enemies. Because those are the people that I left you here to reach, to demonstrate the love of God to them what Jesus did on the cross. He died before we worshiped him. And we love them before they love us in return. Once we accept this reality, the expectation that false things will be said about us, we will be put into groups with words that end with phobic and narrow-minded and whatever else. We have to decide, are we going to stand strong are we going to stand strong in our faith in God and his word, or are we going to compromise that? You see, the temptation is obvious, and that is to change, to compromise, to at least just be quiet. When a hot-button issue comes up at work during a break, we think, well, I'll just go back to my cubicle instead of speaking up. We think... Well, I'll no longer identify that way. I won't wear my Christian t-shirts out in public because Christians have a bad name now. Are we going to be ashamed? Are we going to be bold? See, one of the other characteristics of the culture you and I currently live in, its greatest values are comfort and personal gratification. What that means is those are the opposite of suffering. We live in a world that says do everything possible to avoid discomfort. 
who avoid suffering. It, it even goes into just like our physical nature around us where you go and you buy a car. They're going to tell you about all the amazing comforts and how plush the leather is and, and, and all of the other conveniences and how you don't even have to use your eyeballs anymore. You just push a button and it drives you. I mean, it's like it's all about you and your comfort. TVs, bigger and brighter. I mean, everything is, is whatever we can do for our gratification and our comfort. But then there's one other thing that is so significant about us as humans, and that is our need for approval. You see, there's a, a God-given need for approval in us, but it's all supposed to come from Him. There is something where we wake up wanting to hear, this is my son or daughter with whom I am pleased. You ever wonder why every time the Father said something to Jesus, that's what He told Him? There's nothing wrong with needing to be approved just where do we get our approval from? And in our brokenness, we tend to want our approval from people who hate God and his word. And so when people attack us, we tend to want to change to make them happy because we hate persecution. And so we're going to have to make the choice. Do we stand with God or do we Can I word it this way? If we're persecuted, we will be persecuted for our loyalty to God and his word. So if we try to avoid that, it means that we are more loyal to our reputation or comfort. So I wanna close with a challenge. After Jesus was crucified and rose again, he left the disciples with a mission. Go to the ends of the earth. Make me famous. Tell everybody what I've done for them. Populate heaven. And so his disciples did. And then there was a point where Peter and some of the other disciples went out and they were preaching. And well, they got arrested because blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And as they were put into a jail cell, God sends an angel opens the jail cell and the angel says get back out there and go preach again I don't know about y'all but if angel ever gets me out of jail I'm gonna go do what he says and so the religious leaders come and go we told you not to do that and we put you in jail what's up and so then they grabbed him again and they go and they question them and and Peter and the disciples they had a choice it's the very choice you and I face and they said look all we know is we have to choose to please God over you God over man so you can arrest us, you can kill us, but we're not stopping. And after a little more back and forth, they were released. And I want you to check out this one sentence. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer. They rejoiced. They were counted worthy to suffer. So tomorrow, or the next day, if you stand up and say, I believe God is God, I believe his word is true, I believe he has the right to define creation, you'll be attacked. Will you count it a privilege? Will you, will you rejoice that you were counted worthy to suffer? Will you think of all the hosts of heaven that are looking down upon you, cheering you on? Yes. Will you think of all the martyrs that have given their life for the faith that are saying, you're one of us now. 
Will you think of Jesus, who although perfect and innocent, was spit upon, insulted, and crucified? Or will you be ashamed and hide or compromise what you believe? Blessed are those who are persecuted. You will be. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the warning, just to be honest. We thank you that you've told us that this world will come against us. God, we do have to take a moment here as Americans and say thank you for the blessing that so far we only have to be concerned about reputation and smear attacks and false statements. God, we thank you that we still get to live in a place where we can stand freely and worship your name and sing out loud. God, we do just take a minute and lift up those who do not live in such a place. Say, God, give those people strength wherever they are to stand for your name, even maybe to the point of death. And God, we ask you for ourselves here and now, would you at least give us the strength to stand for your name? If it's to the death of our comfort, the death of our reputation, so be it. Let us be bold for you. Let us not compromise the truth of who you are and what you've said. Help us, God. If you just stay in a place of prayer, I want to speak to those of you that have yet to make Jesus your king. As I explained earlier, he came to the earth, he lived a perfect life. And although he was innocent, he said, no one took my life from me. I lay it down because I love you. I love you. I'm dying for you because there is something that separates you from the Father. And you can never fix it. It's called sin. But I'm going to give my life for you. I'm going to die on the cross so that you can be forgiven and you can be right with God. And every one of us has to respond. Say, thank you, Jesus. If you've never done that, you've never made Jesus your Lord and Savior and accepted the free gift of salvation, wherever you are, I want to help you do that right now. Simply say something like this to yourself and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And so now, I choose to live for you. I thank you that you love me. And I thank you that I'm forgiven. And my simple prayer here today is that you fill me with your spirit and give me a life of great meaning in your kingdom. Amen. Everybody help me celebrate with these people. Amen.